Welcome to Insights. I'm Dick Goldberg. There are so many tough ethical decisions to be made inside the world of hospitals every day. A patient can't afford a necessary procedure. What do you do? The family wants a child out of the hospital, but the doctor says he'll get sick or die if he's taken out. Now what? Grandma is terminal, suffering, and has no written power of attorney, but we know she'd prefer to be gone. What can you do? Well, how are these decisions made? Lots of them are made by the Hospital Ethics Committee. Most hospitals throughout the country have an ethics committee. With us to shed light on how these committees operate, how they work, is the chaplain for St. Mary's Hospital, a 400-bed institution, Father Patrick Norris. He's also the director of ethics for its owner, that hospital's owner, SSM Wisconsin, that owns several hospitals. Father Norris has served on the faculty of St. Louis University's Medical School, where he's taught courses on healthcare ethics. Thanks very much uh, for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, is it safe to assume that most hospitals do have ethics boards? Yes, they either have an ethics committee or sometimes they'll have a staff ethicist that will help families and clinicians and patients work through some of the more difficult ethical questions. You say work through, not make the decisions. Most ethics committees are advisory. Most of their decisions are advisory, helping the clinicians and the families to make a decision. Oh. Ultimately, the uh, physicians and the families or patients make those decisions. So the ethics committee tries to help the people sort out the various issues, precise the, the questions more accurately, sort out any problems in terms of miscommunication, and in doing so, help the clinicians and families make a better decision. That sounds more pastoral than administrative. I, I, are there any decisions that the ethics committee has to chew on that really they make? depends on the ethics committee in the state. So, for example, in the state of Texas, they have a futility policy down there that says if ethics committee uh, would deem a particular treatment futile, that that would then carry weight in terms of the physician then being able to unilaterally remove a treatment that's been deemed futile where there's been a consultation with the ethics committee. So there they would have some weight when the family says we want to continue treatment, the physician says this is futile, the ethics committee makes that judgment that it is indeed futile, and then family members have a time for appeal or finding another clinician or another institution. Okay. But there's a case of where an ethics committee by state law has a little more power. Most ethics committees by nature are advisory precisely because the physician, the healthcare team, uh, they're the ones ultimately responsible for making decisions and they have to own their decisions of conscience. So the ethics committee just tries to uh, provide advice that is helpful in clarifying a problem. Who's on an ethics committee? Well, the committee is most of the time multidisciplinary. It's made up of physicians, nurses, case managers or social workers, uh, chaplains. Frequently there's a lawyer, perhaps an ethicist, a mm -hmm. person who's been trained in that field. And then frequently there are other people from the institution that are on it. And finally there are uh, community members that come from outside the hospital, 
usually not the majority, but there might be a couple of those people on the committee in order to provide a little bit different perspective to avoid a type of groupthink, if you would, that can be common in an institution, a, a culture that might de develop and that these community members then try to provide a, another voice to sure. help clinicians understand where patients, families might be coming from. Okay, but you're an ethicist. I mean, you're, you're a, a, a clergy. Yes. But you also taught ethics. Correct. What do they, why do you need all these other people since you're the expert? You and people like you who are ethicists. Well, first of all, uh, trained ethicists are not present in all hospitals, so it's uh, fortunate that I work sure. in a hospital and have that background and can offer that as a chaplain and as an ethicist, so I have that background. That's helpful. But the other thing is that in terms of resolving ethical decisions, that oftentimes coming from the question from a variety of different perspectives and experiences can be helpful in resolving a problem so that I come with my own perspective, my own understandings, my own experience, but that's not the sum total of experience, obviously. And so having other people that have a background, that have uh, different experiences than I have can be very helpful in resolving problems. So the multidisciplinary approach is very helpful. Well, I think the way to flesh this out is let's look at issues and cases and what do you do. So. What is the most common issue you struggle with? Most common issue that ethics committees, I think, today deal with and really was the start of ethics committees in many ways, uh, the problems associated with death and dying, decisions uh, yeah. about either continuing life support or removing life support. And if, yeah, okay. And, and, and if we look at that decision, let's go back to what I mentioned. Grandma's 93 and she's suffering. She's in the hospital. No power of attorney. And the family says, let's take her off life support. And what do you do? No power of attorney. No preconceived written authorization to do this. So such a case depends upon state law. Some state laws have uh, surrogacy uh, laws where mean? they designate people to make decisions if they don't have a power of attorney so that the spouse would be the next person to make a decision if the patient can't make a decision oh. and they've not left a power of attorney. Mm -hmm. It depends upon the state in terms of that. So as a result, the when there's no written power of attorney, try to do the best you can in terms of what the person may have said, their life decisions. Those are the types of things that people rely on, what they understand their values to be, so that you try to make the decision as if the patient were uh, sitting in front of you saying, this is what I would want. So you make okay. what's well, called so a that, substituted judgment. Th that's, uh, that doesn't sound hard. I mean, it sounds like a very unfortunate circumstance, very terrible circumstance, but the decision doesn't sound hard. If Grandma had said, I don't want to live this kind of life, then you know what to do. So the vast majority of decisions about life support, in fact, are made between patient, family members, and clinicians. Ethics committees don't have to get involved in it. When do you have to get involved? Ethics committees get involved whether when there are cases where the physician maybe feels we're doing too much or not doing enough, where there's a conflict between family members in terms of what grandma would have wanted. Mm -hmm. So one family member oh. says grandma would have wanted this, and then the granddaughter from Tennessee who has not 
seen grandma in 10 years but feels guilty says well let's do everything from grandma and everybody else who's been taking care of grandma the last few years says grandma was ready to go so sometimes there's family conflict that can be there so it just depends upon the particular situation in terms of why there might be something that would come to the ethics committee okay well let's say I'm kind of curious in how you move on a case like that where there's conflicting family opinion Say they're equal weight in terms of their relationship to grandma. And in fact, she is suffering and in fact, she is terminal. Then what happens? A lot of what ethics committees try to do then is to determine the facts. Mm-hmm. One is, what did grandma really say? Okay. Then to look at what is the realistic diagnosis and prognosis for grandma so that Sometimes one of the problems is is that people have incorrect information. So good ethical decisions are based in good scientific information. So it's making sure that everybody's on the same page in terms of the medical facts of the case. And then it's determining, then after that, when everybody's on the same page, why there are a conflict of values. Why is there a disagreement? And try to figure out what's going on there. Is it a personal issue? Is it a issue of faith is one person, for example, holding out for a miracle. There could be a miracle for grandma. Yes. It's possible that this would happen. And and another person is saying, well, if God wants to work a miracle, he can work a miracle whether we remove life support or not. And Mm -hmm. so you have a tension in terms of faith. So it depends upon the particular case. That's the interesting thing about ethics. It's very uh, case specific. So that's why in ethics, the virtue of prudence is so important. Prudence allows us to make decisions in concrete cases so that it takes the norms and principles that are associated with using or not using life support and then it makes a concrete decision and so ethics is very case dependent in terms of that and a lot of it's also clarifying ethical issues in terms of norms so for example one of the things I frequently encounter with people is that they're willing to withhold treatment from grandma but they have a harder time withdrawing it because they think, well, if I withdraw treatment, I'm killing grandma if I take the ventilator off. Whereas if I withhold it in the first place, that's not the same because they feel, well, if I don't remove the ventilator, she'll keep on living. But if I do remove the ventilator, my action then results in her death because she stops breathing. And so people oftentimes misconstrue physical causality for moral culpability, and that can be hard. So sometimes it's clarifying that with patients' families that can be very helpful that ethics committees help with. Um, You're wearing your collar, your father, and in the issues of should someone live or not, should we take them off support, how is being a Catholic uh, clergy different than if you're a rabbi or you're a Unitarian clergy uh, in, in these decisions? Well, for me, the ethical principles remain the same in terms of decisions about life support. So, for example, you look at, is the treatment overly burdensome in comparison with the benefits that it offers? That's the standard that you would use. Now, benefits and burdens depend upon people's particular religious affiliation. So, for example, a Jehovah's Witness who would need a blood transfusion to stay alive would say that would be terribly spiritually burdensome for me and therefore it would be inappropriate for that person to take that treatment and they may say I want everything else done 
but not that. And if it means I die, I die, because that's my religious belief. Now, as a Catholic priest, I don't hold that particular uh, tenant, but at the same time, I respect the Jehovah's Witness and his or her desire to follow religious belief. And so in that type of case, if we know that the person really is making an authentic decision, then we would allow that Jehovah's Witness to make that decision in terms of not taking blood products and maybe dying sooner as a result of that. So the religious belief comes in in terms of our analysis of burdens and benefits of the treatment. And so, for example, maybe for a person that believes in the afterlife that may say, well, I'm all right with not having this treatment because I know there's something Mm -hmm. beyond this where there's no more suffering, and so I'm ready to go. Or another person who might not have a belief in the afterlife may say, it's more important for me to stay around and be interactive with people, etc. So religious belief comes in in terms of the burdens and benefits analysis of any particular treatment. I would guess that one of the issues that comes up has to do with money and affordability. Is that correct in an ethics committee, or is money never an issue? In my time, I've never seen a case where that I've been involved on an ethics committee where the money question has been the primary issue. So well, that I'm thinking if someone can't afford a procedure, but they need it. So that most hospitals have a, a certain amount of money that they have for charity care, because that's important mm-hmm. in terms of what a hospital's uh, mission is, is to provide for people that can't afford it. So that most hospitals have a certain amount of money that's budgeted for a charity care. So one tries not to make decisions based on whether a person can afford it or not afford it. So when a case comes before an ethics committee, we don't get a piece of paper that says this person is uninsured or is on Medicaid or is on Medicare or has private insurance to make a decision in terms of that. Those types of things are perhaps global issues in terms of how we insure people. And uh, the reality is that many people forego treatment because they can't afford it. They don't have insurance. That's true. They they skip tests. They don't get their prescriptions because they can't Mm -hmm. afford the, the prescription. But in terms of an ethics committee, in terms of making decisions, that would not be part of the decision-making process. What if the family's in conflict? They say, well, uh, Grandpa needs this to live, but that would be half of his estate. He has the money, and one side says, let's not do it. He's probably not going to make it. And the other said, yes, we want every possible effort made, and they're in conflict. So that's a great question, and that gets back to the burden-benefit discussion. So somebody may say, for me to use up all my resources to keep me alive for a limited amount of time and that it would use the resources that I wanted to have uh, be used for my spouse to continue to uh, thrive after I die, a person may say, therefore, this treatment has become too burdensome. So economics... This is is the patient saying, but what if the the patient can't talk? Well, then you have to look at from a perspective for the family, well, what do we think the patient would have wanted? So is this the type of patient who would have said, rather than spend all this money and keep me alive in a nursing home with minimal interaction, Mm -hmm. would have said, nah, he wouldn't have been the type or she wouldn't have been the type to do that. 
or maybe say, well, he would have been the type. So it just depends upon the, the case at hand. But finances can enter in, not from the hospital side, but from the patient or the patient's family in terms of their own sense of what the patient would have wanted. Do you ever um, see a situation where you have bad feelings about the family's decision because they're looking at what's for best, best for them financially rather than the patient? Sometimes there can be cases where an individual may be making a decision because of an impure motive. So there can be cases, I can remember one, where uh, the person was uh, caring for an elderly neighbor and the neighbor had a stroke, needed a feeding tube, it was appropriate to put in the feeding tube. The neighbor who was in line to inherit money said no, no feeding tube. There was questions about whether there was a conflict of interest and therefore that was a type of case where the ethics committee said we need to get a guardian appointed for the person, that this person is not an appropriate mm -hmm. individual to make the decision because it did not seem like the burden of treatment outweighed the benefits. Do you and have the authority to do that? So anytime a clinician who senses that there is an inappropriate decision that's being made, in other words, that the burdens of the treatment are not outweighing mm -hmm. the benefits, that there's a clear sense of that and there's a potential conflict of interest that then the clinician can say, well, I think we need to go to court. And, and oftentimes there is a lawyer on the ethics committee, they have a discussion and say, yes, this may be a time where we need to get a guardian appointed because we're not sure that this is really the decision of so that's the a, patient. A, that's a, a committee decision, we'd better go to court, or we'd better talk to this person and say, we, we would recommend this if you're not, then yes. we have to hire a lawyer. Uh, okay, uh, do you have any say over bad practices within a hospital. I know a fellow who was 61, a very good surgeon from what I heard, and he said, you know, at 61 I noticed I wasn't quite as good as I used to be, but I could have kept going. I loved it, but I quit. We gotta know there's some surgeons that are beyond their time, or their skills are not too sharp, or they're impaired with drugs. Does the ethics committee ever get involved in these situations? The Ethics Committee generally does not get involved in those types of situations. I think those would be best handled by the medical director and the hospital. So that really goes through a different avenue to make sure quality of care is provided. Now, it is an ethical issue, of course, just like, mm -hmm. for example, appropriate hand washing is an ethical issue, making sure that people don't get infected. So in many hospitals, there's been a concerted effort to make sure everybody washes their hands in and out of the patient's room 100% of the time. That's an ethical issue. It doesn't come before the ethics committee right. necessarily. It's coming through different types of departments. But nevertheless, it's an ethical issue that's there in a hospital. How about the parents who don't want a treatment for their kid that the doctor thinks is necessary? So in cases where parents are refusing treatment for a child, the question then has to come up, why are they refusing? So is it a religious belief? Is it a conflict about what the burden and the benefit of the treatment is? Is it a misunderstanding about diagnosis and prognosis? So you have to sort that through. One of the issues that comes up though is in terms of at least religious belief, if it is a case of where 
a clinician has a sense that normally one would not uh, forego life-sustaining interventions and the parents are doing it because of a particular religious belief and the child's not had an opportunity to ratify that belief, then from an ethics standpoint it seems appropriate to say one would treat until the child would reach a point where he or she could ratify that decision. So how, so how is that resolved? So the parents say no, the doctors must, or the kid will die, or whatever. Then what happens? So oftentimes that then goes to court to get a court order. For are you, are you involved first before it goes to court? So an ethics committee may be involved first in terms of that. May or may not court. be, depending yeah. upon the particular situation. So for example, um, infants of uh, children uh, of the Jehovah Witnesses or yes. something like that. That's all, in terms of a blood transfusion. Oftentimes, neonates need a blood transfusion, so that may be there. Now, again, and they would say, "No, this is against our religion." Right, and the courts would say, "Well, it's your religion, but it's not your child's religion." Uh -huh. Now, generally, we try to respect religion in our society. That's a great value from an ethical standpoint, from a societal standpoint. But at times, we say when it seems to offer harm to an individual from society standing back saying this, then uh, oftentimes a judge will intervene and say, no, this treatment has to be done. So those are the types of uh, situations where there might be an intervention by the courts. Now, at the same time, uh, physicians will try to do their best not to have to do a blood transfusion. So if they can work in a way that minimizes blood loss in terms of a particular surgery or look at the, the child's hemoglobin and say, well, we can get to this level and we're still all right, then you can try to avoid it. So as, as best as we can, we try to respect the wishes of parents and to respect religious belief, regardless of what that belief is. But there's a certain point where it may cross the line where society has to intervene for the sake of an individual for, to protect life, and then you may have to trump the religious belief of the parent. But with this child, if some blood transfusion would be better than none, but you could get by without it, wouldn't it still be the ethical thing to give the blood transfusion? Well, here I think it depends upon the particular medical situation. Giving a blood transfusion is not absolutely innocuous. There are issues associated with it, so you don't want to do a blood transfusion unless you really have to. So that would be one of the issues that would be there. So you would try to uh, make sure that everything else was being done so you wouldn't have to do the transfusion, but if you got to that when push comes to shove point, then you would need to do a transfusion. What, what are the other more typical issues that come before an ethics committee? Sometimes there are questions about law versus ethics. So, for instance, uh, issues of power of attorneys or who should be the surrogate. Is the surrogate acting in the best interest when there is uh, disagreements amongst the family members? So it's not so much the decision that's at hand, it's who should be making the decision that can be uh, there. Uh, another issue that, that comes up, uh, I think, uh, frequently is the issue of faith and the issue of miracles and how do you deal with that and helping people look at what they're hoping in versus what they're hoping for. So what you hope in stays constant, but sometimes what you hope for 
needs to change as the medical condition changes. But it's always very difficult to argue against God. That's a hard thing to do with family members when miracles are at stake. And so you have to try to deal with people where they are in their faith and kind of understand, is there a way to help them hope for something different as things are moving on? What's an example of hoping for a miracle when it's a problem? Well, sometimes you find individuals that are family members that are, despite medical indications, that say this person is not going to make it, that you need to say uh, that maybe God here is indicating his will by where the patient's condition is going. Maybe this is an indication of, of God's divine plan by the way the person is declining. And We're this talking about end-of-life issues. Yes. Okay. And it's difficult, again, for families because they're, they're dealing with not only issues of uh, death and dying, but also challenges to their own faith. So it's trying to be supportive as possible. That's why hospitals have chaplains to help people uh, deal with those different types of questions. How has this changed over the last 20, 30 years, the role of ethics in hospitals? Well, I would say the main thing that I've seen since I started in the field is the shift where family members now are more likely to ask for treatment and the clinicians are more likely to not want to be treating as opposed to when we go back to those early ethics questions of Nancy Beth Cruzan or Karen Ann Quinlan where it was more a case of where family members were trying to pull back and clinicians and others were trying to uh, push the treatment. So that now what we see is, I think, as uh, physicians have seen realistically what can be done and what really can't be done, that they tend to be more open to removing life support uh, earlier than they were in the past. So it's no longer, we have to do everything. So the technological imperative is if we can do it, we should do it. Physicians, I think, are moving away from that. Sometimes families now are more likely to want to have everything done. And that's sometimes where the uh, struggles have shifted almost 180 degrees. Is there anything else, uh, any other references, any other place to get more information about this subject for those who want to know more that you want to recommend before we close? Well, I think there are plenty of things on, uh, on websites. You can always go to a particular um, hospital and they may have information about their own ethics committees. Most websites have those types of things, but there's just a whole host of information on the web about websites these days. For Catholics, for example, there's the ethical and religious directives for Catholic health care services that go through all the different ethical questions that are, are there for individuals. Uh, and so the hope is, is that, that ethics committees can be there uh, to help people. And one of the main things I hope for is that, uh, is besides the case consultation, which is important, but it's also looking at policies to make sure they're up to date and appropriate and mainly to do staff education and community education. For example, advanced directives today to help people learn to fill those out and have discussions with those. I oftentimes joked about my mom who said, when she made me her power of attorney, uh, she said, well, Patrick, you know what I'd want. I said, mom, (laughs) I haven't known what you wanted for 
since I was 15. So let's have a discussion. So to talk about those things are important, not to be afraid of the ethical questions and to realize that with people together working in concert, you can come to some sound ethical decisions that benefit all parties involved. Well, Father Patrick Norris, thank you very much for filling us in on this subject, and I hope you'll join us on the next edition of Insights.